This is God's Word from 1 Timothy 6, 12-16. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, good morning. I thought I might paint my face and wear a skirt that you might listen more, but... (laughs) I love that scene from Bravehearts. It's a rousing call to the Scottish people to engage in what seems to be an unwinnable war for freedom. They have a choice to make between just surviving, as the one said, yeah, we will run and we'll live, or to live for a much greater cause. They're living under the oppression of their English masters, but William Wallace led them to step forth to engage the battle against a much larger and better equipped and better trained English force And they defeated them that day at the Battle of Stirling. Today, I think we need a similar rousing call to arms. It seems that most Christians have forgotten that we are at war. And we've slipped into just trying to survive, just to live another day. Find a little happiness until we go to heaven. For many of us, it seems like the greatest battles we face are the battles to try to figure out what Christmas gift to get. We're battling traffic on the way to the mall. But brothers and sisters, we are at war. We have vicious enemies that are out to destroy our lives, our very souls, our homes, our children, our marriages, our churches, our impact in this world. Who are these enemies? Well, Scripture makes them very clear who they are. Satan and his spiritual forces who are out to destroy us. The world system with its lies in our own flesh the wages war and wants to drag us down and control us. We fight against the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says. It's time to step up, brothers and sisters, and join the forces of light to drive out the darkness and, just, and quit just surviving. Some 500 years after William Wallace led the Scots, in the American Revolution, the colonists fought against those same English. Only about a third of the colonists 
were actually in favor of the revolution. Most were neutral, some were loyalists. And of those one-third that were favorable to the revolution, only a few of those actually fought. But those who did changed the course of history. Are you and I willing to join the fight to drive out darkness and to bring in the kingdom of God? Heavenly Father, as we bow before you today, we need to be awakened. We've been asleep. We so easily get numbed by this world into living for it. Today, may we hear your call. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a call to arms in this passage today. We're given first our marching orders. Paul begins this way, fight the good fight of faith, he says. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul calls Timothy to fight the good fight. Not to fight the wrong fight. Make sure that it's the fight of faith. It's for the faith. It's for the gospel. It's for what God is doing in this world. It's for the kingdom of God where God is invading and bringing His life to change and heal people's lives. Paul is calling Timothy to understand that this is war and that the Christian life is a struggle. Don't believe the lies that say, well, you know, if I'm really trusting God, then life should go well. Wrong. If you're really trusting God, you're engaged in the battle and life is a struggle. If you don't like that, get over it. (laughs) That's it. That's what we're called to. We've been drafted, Paul says, essentially. (laughs) I miss the Vietnamese draft. The Vietnam draft by a couple of years, but those who were drafted, life changed for them. They were drafted into the army. They had to fight. They lived a different life. They could no longer live that civilian life. And brothers and sisters, we can no longer live a civilian life. We are soldiers in God's army. Some of us don't like that kind of militant talk, but that's what the Scripture uses. For us. So Paul is saying, don't get distracted from your calling. You've been drafted, Timothy. And I want to challenge men especially, because I think as men we, we sit back and we forget to engage. John Eldritch challenges the way we think about our faith as men in his book Wild at Heart, where he says, Christianity as it currently exists has done some terrible things to men. When all is said and done, I think most men in the church believe that God put them on the earth to be a good boy. The problem with men, we're told, is that they don't know how to keep their promises, be spiritual leaders, talk to their wives, or raise their children. But if they will try real hard, they can reach the lofty summit of becoming a nice guy. That's what we hold up as models of Christian maturity, really nice guys. We don't smoke, drink, or swear. That's what makes us men. Now, let me ask my male readers, in your boyhood dreams growing up, did you ever dream of becoming a nice guy? 
And ladies, was the prince of your dreams dashing or merely nice? Several books have been written recently about the feminization of the church. The men don't really feel like they fit in the body of Christ, in the church services, because the music, the messages, and the ministries of the church appeal more to women than to men. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that. How does that happen? Holly Pivak, in an article in Viola Magazine, said this, describing a book called Total Truth. said, The author said, Industrialization forced men to seek work away from home, in factories and offices, which created a split between the public and private spheres of life. I talked about this last week. The public sphere became secularized through the new values of competition and self-interest. And the private sphere came to represent the old values of nurturing and religion, the author said. Thus, religion came to be seen as for women and children and not as relevant to the real world of business, politics, academia, etc. It's true, in our contemporary Christian world, the music, for example, is often about intimacy with God. It appeals to the heart rather than the head. It appeals more to women than to men because of that. I want to say that I really appreciate Adrienne because she works really hard to appeal to both head and heart and to make sure our lyrics are sound theologically and challenging theologically. She's rare in how she leads our worship in our Christian world today. Many of the messages are about kind of self-help in our world, in our Christian world, but we're committed to teach the Scriptures here no matter what it says or how hard it may be to hear. Sometimes men can get the feeling that the only way to serve in the church is maybe to teach Sunday school. And for most men, that doesn't appeal to them. Though I will say, the men we have teaching Sunday school have a huge impact on our kids. And we have a number of you men doing that, and it's a wonderful way to serve. But I understand those of you men who feel like, but where can I serve? What is God calling me to do? You see, God wants us to have a vision as both men and women that we are at war. And we need to join the front lines, fight the good fight. What does that look like? Well, again, Holly Pivik says, Churches should stress the cost and dangers of following Christ, including Christians' conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Men need to be reminded that the sacrifice won't always be a huge, glorious display like William Wallace stepping out on a battlefield, she writes. Many times it will be staying in a troubled marriage, raising and loving a handicapped child, or even working at a hated job to provide for your family, one author writes. You see, every time, men and women, that we choose to die to ourselves and follow Christ instead of our own flesh, instead of follow the world, we're taking ground for Christ. Anytime we step out to meet with a hurting friend, even though we'd rather stay at home and watch football, We're taking ground for the kingdom of God. 
when we choose to move towards our spouse who's hurting and we have no idea what to say and it would be so much easier to just withdraw and let it blow over. But to enter in and say, I don't know what to do, but Lord, help me love her or him. We're taking ground for the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. Donna, in her prayer, read Ephesians chapter 6 of our warfare. I want to read part of that, a little bigger passage of that. Chapter 6, verse 10 of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. What are our weapons in this warfare in which we are all engaged? We've been drafted into Well, Scripture says truth. That's the armor of God, reminding ourselves of the truth of who God is and where our righteousness comes from. Faith, trusting Him, not what our eyes tell us. Love, reaching out in love. That takes ground for Christ when we choose to die to ourselves and love another, put another above ourselves. And one of our greatest weapons that we almost forget is prayer. Prayer. When we believe the truth and pass it on to others in our conversations, when we choose to live by faith, to trust in Christ, despite what the world is telling us, when we step out to love the unlovely and put others first, including our own spouses and families, and when we engage in prayer not just going through the motions to check it off the list, oh, I prayed today, but truly pleading, may your kingdom come and your will be done. May your kingdom come in my life. May your kingdom come in the life of another, in our church, in our community, in our government, and so forth. And we beseech God to intervene and to make a difference when we call for the kingdom of God to come. We are storming the gates of hell and bringing about the kingdom of God. So to fight, we need our marching orders. And we also need the resources to fight with. What do we depend on? Paul goes on to give us those resources in this passage where he goes on to say this, take hold of the eternal life, verse 12, to which you were called. What are our resources for this fight? You see, you've got to have the right equipment, right? If you're going to fight. Remember David, when he was going to go fight Goliath and King Saul said, here, take my armor. And he tried to put it on. It didn't fit. It was unwieldy. He couldn't fight with those. We can't go to war without the proper equipment. And Paul says to Timothy, take hold, grab hold of what you want to hang on to in this war is eternal 
life. Now, what is that? In our minds, again, this is so natural for us, we think, oh, that's heaven. That's someday. That's way off in the future. I hope you've come to see that in the New Testament, that is not the perspective. It is future, but it's now. Eternal life, Jesus tells us, John 17:3, is that we may know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. It's our relationship with Him. It's knowing Him. It's something that begins now on earth and carries on into eternity. It's His life in us. Paul says, grab hold of that life that's available to you now because that's what you will need to fight the battle. What does that look like practically? Well, I think it means this. It means recognizing I don't have what it takes to defeat Satan. I don't have what it takes to defeat even my own flesh. But Christ in me is enough. His life in me is available to me and I can depend on Him for the battle. So when I need to die to myself, I don't want to go do this, Lord, but you are in me and I will depend on your life. I'm tired, I'm feeling selfish, but Lord, because of you in me, I will step out and trust that you will be enough for me. I don't know how to love this person. I don't know what to say to my hurting friend or my atheist brother, or, but Lord, you are in me and therefore I will rely on the eternal life in me, on your life in me, on the Holy Spirit that you have planted in my life. So when we say, Jesus, love this person through me. Help me step out in faith, knowing the Spirit of God will guide me. We are relying on eternal life. We are taking hold of eternal life. That's our resource. That's our equipment. It's Him. Him in us. Do you realize what a glorious thing that is? You have the Holy Spirit in you. The very life of God. So step out in faith. And then we also need a clear mission. What's our mission? He says in verse 13 and 14, I charge you... Notice Paul's words. He's serious to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. That's quite an introduction, Paul. Get to the point. What is the point? I charge you that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. What is our mission, ultimately? To keep the commandment. What is the commandment? Jesus said very clearly what the greatest commandment is. Love God and love others. It's living a life of love, depending on Him and loving others, knowing Him more, loving Him more. As we live that way, His life is displayed in us. It's using your spiritual gifts to step out and say, okay, God, I want to make a difference in someone's life today. Love them through me. You love them, Lord, through me. I have your life in me. Let me not live a life of selfishness or impurity. He says, keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Deal with sin in your own life. Say no to the flesh. That's part of the battle, isn't it? The real battle we face in our own souls is, will I be selfish and live for myself or will I live a life of love? And will I give in to the flesh or will I put that to death? 
That's the battle in our soul, isn't it? That's the warfare. And when we choose to do that in little ways, little choices, we're driving back the enemy. So as we fight, we, we need this, these marching orders. We need this call. But we also need some sense that we're making a difference, right? That, that some confidence in the battle. Because I know many Christians get discouraged. I've seen a number of folks who have said, well, you know, I keep trying, but nothing seems to happen. I've made some effort to really follow God or look for a way to serve Him. Nothing seems to come together, so I'm just going to just survive. Christians get discouraged quite easily in the battle. So Paul goes on to give Timothy some encouragement here. He says, you keep going, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. What's our confidence in the battle? Our confidence in the battle is that Jesus is coming back. Therefore, victory is assured. That eventually, your efforts to hang in there and keep trusting Christ and keep following Him and keep putting the flesh to death will be rewarded. The things that happen in your life, the the ground you take for Christ in little increments, that will be carried over into eternity when Jesus returns. We may be fighting in the trenches, but when Jesus returns, victory is assured. No matter how dark things look, Jesus will come back. No matter how crazy this world seems and it seems like God is losing and where is your kingdom, God? We can't see it. Because Jesus is coming back and we know He's Lord and His kingdom is expanding, then we know that it's all worthwhile. Satan was bound when Jesus rose from the grave, when He defeated death forever on the cross and rose again. And therefore, we can keep fighting and Jesus will defeat evil forever and cast Satan into the lake of fire and we will fully be set free from sin at that wonderful time. So he says, don't give up, Timothy. Keep going. You see, when we give in to selfishness and just try to bide our time until we get to heaven, we lose out. We forget the importance of each little choice we make daily in either expanding the kingdom or retracting the kingdom. And yeah, we're going to blow it. Of course we do. We all do. But we just go to Christ, ask forgiveness, thank Him for the cross, thank Him for His blood that was shed for us, and then we get up, pick up our weapons of truth and love and faith and prayer and keep going, get back in the, mat- in the battle. Our choices really do matter for eternity. And it says He will come back at the proper time. At the exact right time. But the question is, whose side will we be on when He returns? Who will we be living for? And I think now Paul goes on to remind us that not only do we need our marching orders, our call, 
and a sense of confidence that this is worth it, that in the end, victory is assured. But we also need to understand that we need a commander to listen to and obey. Throughout history, troops have lost their morale when they've lost confidence in their commander to make the best and wisest decisions. If they think he's a fool, if they think he's unwise, if they think he's not a good leader, they're more likely to cut and run. Earlier in the video from Braveheart, the men are saying, well, they think they're fighting for the nobles. And they say, we don't want to fight for them. We're going to go run and make sure that we take care of ourselves. And William Wallace shows up and says, no, I'm here. Don't fight for them. Fight for me. Well, that's what Jesus has done. He's given us a picture of himself to say, fight for me. (laughs) Don't abandon your post, but fight for me. See, I think some Christians have done the same. We've abandoned our post because we have a shallow view of God. We've dropped out of the fight because we haven't trusted him in who he is. We have a shallow view where a number of Christians I've talked to, and I've done this myself in the course of my own walk with Christ, where I've said in my heart, well, God, life doesn't make sense to me. You've brought suffering into my life or into other people's lives that I don't understand. I don't like it. Feels to me like you're not good. Feels to me like you're not loving, so I quit. I'm abandoning my post. Oh, I'll still go to church. I'll still go through the motions. But I don't think you're good enough to really follow, and therefore I quit. Because you're not who I thought you were. Believe me, I've been there, and I know many of you are there today. Well, let me just say this. The problem is not with God. It's with your shallow view of God. It's your theology that's wrong. You're not seeing God for who He really is. In the story of Job, remember Job was a righteous man. He probably knew God better than anybody else in his day. But when suffering came into his life, he got bitter and angry and frustrated with God. God, this doesn't make sense. I don't get it. And what did God do to turn his life around and get him back into the battle? Gave him a vision of his awesome glory. He didn't get answers. He didn't know how this all began. He didn't know about Satan coming to God. He didn't know any of that. But he got a glimpse of God that got him back into the battle. And I think, brothers and sisters, that's what we need, is a glimpse of God that gets us back in the battle. What did Job do when he saw God for who he was? He repented in dust and ashes. So what Paul does for Timothy now to keep him in the battle is give him a clearer picture of God perhaps than he'd ever seen. So he'd be inspired to stay in the fight. Notice this amazing description. This is unlike any place else in the Scriptures. He says, He, verse 15... He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Now why does Paul wax so eloquently about these awesomeness, the transcendence of God? Because if we catch a glimpse of God's incredible transcendence, that He is the supreme commander over the universe, and is truly blessed and truly good, then we'll be inspired to stay in the fight, even when we don't understand. Notice his description. He's the blessed one. In other words, he's the one who is full of blessing, who gives blessing properly at the right time. He's a God of goodness, of grace, of blessing, who's blessed and passes blessing onto his creation. Paul says he's the only sovereign, the only all-powerful one, the only one in the universe with all power and might. He has no rivals. That means he's over Satan. Satan can do nothing apart from God's sovereign control. All the spiritual forces of darkness are ultimately under his control. He is all-powerful over the universe. And Paul says, and by the way, Timothy, he's king of kings and lord of lords. I think here he's got in mind earthly rulers. There is no king throughout history that God wasn't greater than. We see that throughout the scriptures. The greatest kings God had absolute, absolute authority over. Nebuchadnezzar. Ramesses, Pharaoh, etc., etc. What that means is all authorities on earth are under His command. So no matter what you face in life, God is still over the authorities and powers of this world. We need not fear Putin or Ahmadinejad. He's over all. He was over Nero, who is in power. One of the most evil emperors ever. He was in power as Paul wrote this to his beloved son, Timothy. He rules and guides the hearts of kings according to his own will. He is king of kings and lord of lords, so stay in the fight. Then he goes on to say, he alone possesses immortality. Why is that important? Well, he exists outside of time. He sees the beginning and the end. All of it is being worked towards his purposes. There's a false theology out there called open theology that says, well, God really doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. That's crazy. He's immortal. He alone possesses immortality. He sees it all. He is sovereign. He is over all. And that is our supreme commander, so we can trust Him. He alone possesses immortality, and therefore everything and everyone else in heaven and earth is created, has a beginning, but not Him. He can share His immortality with us, which He has chosen to do, but again, we were created, we had a beginning, and He can choose to share that with us. He existed before all time and forever after. Then Paul says, He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. There's a few epiphanies in the scripture, right, where you see God's back or, you know, you catch catch glimpses or Jesus is an incarnation. But to see God in all his fullness, in all his glory, he is so glorious, he's brighter than the sun that will blind us if we look at it. 
He's pure, holy, righteous. He's all light with no taint of darkness. So everything He does is pure and right and good because He is above His creation. If we could see God in all His holiness, in His unapproachable light, as human beings, we'd be obliterated. It would blow our minds. We couldn't even contain it. We couldn't even look at it. That's how glorious He is. So what can we say to this kind of God who is our supreme commander, who is the one we follow, who is in charge, who is working it all out? I don't think we can say anything other than what Paul says. To Him be honor and dominion, authority, power, rule, sovereignty, forever and ever. Amen. You see, we follow a worthy supreme commander who is entirely worthy of our trust and obedience, even when we don't understand his commands and don't understand what he's doing around us in his sovereignty. We know he's good, we know he's sovereign, and we can trust him. Brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been called to arms and you've been given everything you need to stay in the fight. You've been given marching orders. You've been given the resource of the Holy Spirit to depend on His eternal life who indwells you and empowers you for the task. You've been given the guarantee of victory. Jesus is coming back. And you've been given a supreme commander who is worthy of our obedience. So what are we waiting for? The battle we've been called to is so much greater than, gee, I hope I get the right Christmas gifts. Gee, I hope the traffic isn't too bad. And may we be able to say with Paul, as he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, just before he faced his own execution, verse 7, verse 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved, and might I add, lived for, fought for, his appearing. Pray with me. Lord, you've called us to battle. We confess we've forget, we get distracted, we live for ourselves rather than for you, but you have redeemed us and called us and bought us with a price. May we join the battle. Thank you that you have given us everything we need and you are our commander worth following. Use us, Lord, to expand the kingdom of God. May you drive back the darkness and may we play our part until you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.